and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 249. So this weekend coming up, November 7th, Saturday, all day Saturday. Well, time I wake up and when I fall asleep like 24 hours later. Um, I signed up for the Extra Life Charity, which is a uh, charity stream, video game ch- charity stream for... Uh, children hospitals all over America, and I'm raising money for the local chapter here, which is the Texas Children's Hospitals. Um, so there's a link in the description of this podcast and on my Twitter that you can go and donate. Um, basically, it's like you know how you have all those charity like walks and jogs. I think there's like one here in Houston's called Boot Walk for Cancer. You know, you basically go around and get funding from people to donate to you and you go walk well instead of walking i get to play video games for 24 hours something that i prefer better than walking for a long time (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah uh all donations are tax deductible 100 percent of it goes to the hospital there's no middleman or anything like that it all goes to the hospital um so what do you what are you going to be playing parker i'm going to be playing an older game it might some this game might have come out before some of our listeners. Oh gosh, uh, it's kind of crazy to think about that way. But yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. If if you are fifteen or younger, then, <laughs> then this game oh is gosh, older than good. you. Yeah. Um, so I'll be playing the Half Life Two series, and I say series because there's a base game Half Life Two, and then there's an Episode One and Episode Two. I'm gonna be playing through all three of those, and also on the hardest difficulty. And 100% achievement unlocks. So basically doing everything and finding all the Easter eggs and, yeah, all that stuff. So do you have that memorized? Like, know it off the top of your head? Like, all the unlocks? Uh, I want to have a list of all the achievements so I make sure to, to remind myself of them. And actually, that's one thing I'm working on. Uh, I spent way, I was up way too late last night working on some JavaScript to try to figure out how to read the achievements out of steam so steam is like this ginormous uh uh store to buy online store to buy video games from but they also have the achievements are in there as well which are like milestones in the game right and so steam has an api that you can pull and get the achievements that you currently have or don't have for the game and so what I was going, I've been working on is trying to write some JavaScript so I can pull that list, and so that on my video game stream I could have the list there with like checkboxes next to like the ones I've done so far in the game so far. Nice. Sounds like a lot of work. It is because no one's actually tried this before. Like I've done so much. I spent like two hours googling like last night trying to see if anyone's ever tried to do this, and no one has. Um, and how Steam's API works, you can't just do like a fetch quest, like a fetch of the of the API endpoint. You can't do that. You have to like actually run like a uh, a JavaScript server and stuff to make it work. Mm. So I got to run like a local server and make it work. I think I'm going to be able to make it work. Hopefully by the end of tonight, after this podcast, I have like a prototype that I'm like, okay, I can do this. Cause that would be nice because then people could come in and see what I'm doing and how far I'm through the game with the achievements and stuff like that. Should, uh, you should have it where it tweets out uh, an achievement every time you get it. 
Oh, that's a good idea, too. <laughs> I mean, it is... I'm learning... Because I know enough JavaScript to, like, build local apps and stuff, but I've never tried using... What is it? Uh, like, Node.js. Hmm. Um, never tried using any of that kind of stuff, so I'm learning all that tonight. <laughs> tonight. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so uh, so when, do, when does it all start? So... Uh, technically, if you go with ex Extra Life is like the big uh, umbrella of like the whole thing. They kind of like organize it and make sure all the infrastructure is in place mm -hmm. and like provide the the way for people to funnel money into the charities, that kind of stuff. Um, so technically, you can do it anytime, but the big event is November 7th, which is a Saturday, and I'm going to start at 8 a.m., and go to 8 p 8 a.m. on Sunday. Jeez. It's 24 hours. I think... So the last time I played... I did this. I could do... Basically the three games. I could beat them in 16 hours. Okay. On hard. Now, I don't know about all the achievements. Also. Um, and I also want to try to do it without, like, save scrumming. So, like... I don't want to be like, oh, I messed up. I need to go back. Basically, if I mess up, it's like, okay, we just won't get that one, right? But we're going to try to get them all. Yeah, I was wondering because a lot of times achievements are like, make sure you blow this one thing's head off. And if you don't do that, it's like, it's not as simple as like, go here and grab this item that's on the ground, you know? Yeah, yeah. So the big one is going to be like this one where find all the lambda symbols, which oh, are like, yeah. I have to remember where all those are at. Because it's been five years at this point since I played this game, so yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be fun. Mm. It's gonna be great. That that's cool. Yeah. Well, uh, once again, why don't you tell people where they can find your stream at? So it's, there's definitely gonna be a link in the description of the podcast. Uh, it's gonna be on my Twitter, which is Longhorn Engineer, um, with no O's in Longhorn. It's kind of confusing, but um, yeah, I'll be tweeting it out. Um, it's also in our Slack channel. Uh, Coolatron like donated like oodles of money last night. Actually, right after I posted it, like he actually made it so I hit my first goal like right away. <laughs> Single-handedly. So, so I had yeah. So I had a, or I already moved the goalposts. Nice <laughs> down down the line. <laughs> that's that's so, awesome. Yeah, yeah. It was it was awesome. So um, is it is it like Twitch where you get notified when somebody gives a uh, a donation? Yes. Yeah. So if uh, my Twitch channel is twitch.tv slash crabfoam. Not spelled actually crabfoam. Yeah, spelled actually crabfoam. C R A B F O A M. Um, and that will also be there. So I'm hoping people stop by on Saturday and like watch, hang out, chat with me, that kind of stuff. Watch me hopefully not die a lot of times. There's some sections where like I will die repeatedly because I'm trying to do it a certain, like try to get a certain achievement. And 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 hard is is moderately hard in Half Life Two. Yes, uh, you you there's not a lot of bullets you can take. No, for sure not. Very cool. Well, tune in for that and uh, give some money to uh, charity. Well, okay. Hardware now. So this weekend, Pinatar Revision Three went gold. Ooh. Yeah. Is this like production version? Um. It could be, depending on how well it prototypes. <laughs> yeah, I ordered uh, some prototypes for it. Cool. Um, but it's gone gold. Um, 
boards are off, the the designs are off into the, into the Fab House cloud, right? Mm. Um, so some differences we did over Rev Two is we added more current sensing to the board because previously we were only current sensing on the solenoids, and they wanted to do current sensing on like the motor controls and the servos just to see like that so you can they can actually detect if a servo is stalling out or something like that. Um, but we had to actually change to a different chip. Because previously we were using the Allegro, and this is a doozy of a part number, ACS711KEXLT-15AB-T, which is the 15-amp version of a, um, of a uh, I think it's a Hall Effect sensor, uh, current sensor. Um, I think it's Hall Effect, that's how they work? I can't remember. Um, basically, it, it you put a bunch, you put the current trace into it. The current trace comes out of it, and a analog voltage signal comes out of it that you can read off your microcontroller. Um, they're pretty sweet, but the 15 amp versions were too beefy for like the low current servos and uh, steppers, and so we are using the five volt version, uh, not five volt, five amp version of that sh- same chip. It's like the it's like the same footprint, but it has some less features it's kind of weird hmm. um and this is an even longer part number i'm just going to put it in the part notes oh the, the uh, it's another acs7 yeah but it's like completely different format it's it's really weird um but the difference between them is not it's just it's not just the current capabilities of them um the high current one also has like a fault line like a fault signal whereas the low current ones don't i don't know why it may be some kind of requirement out there for like uh, a lot of times these are used in automotive or some other industry that that requires that extra line. Yeah, because the package has it for the low current. It's just not connected. Right. It's NC'd. Right. Um, but because of that fault line, we're actually going to use the fault line on the 15 amp one now. Um, previously, the microcontroller controlled the relay that loud all the current to come onto the 50 volt line for the solenoids. Um, and, uh, but we never ran into this issue, but it was just one of those, let's just add more safety into this device. Like what happens if the microcontroller did lock up and that output was on high and then a solenoid decided to run away and start smoking. Right. Mm-hmm. So we added a fault pin. Oh, not added the fault pin. But we took the fault pin output of the, uh, current sensor and ran that into an AND gate that went into the relay enable uh, MOSFET driver now. Oh, so it can kill itself if needed be. Yeah, so uh, the microcontroller has to send a 1 to the AND gate and the fault has to be because uh, the fault's active low so it has to send a 1 basically because it's pulled up um, and if those are both 1, then the gate driver for the MOSFET turns on and it turns on our brand new different style of relay that we put on the board too. Because before we were using like these, uh, they were just standard standard relays, but um, these were activated by three volts. But we were actually having issues with like um, the contacts were like welding together. It's kind of weird. We could never figure out why because technically it was rated high enough, but it was still. I don't know. I think it was just like switching at weird moments or maybe the coil because it was such a low voltage coil. Um, it couldn't switch fast enough. And so we, sw- I, uh, 
took that style relay out and I put in a socketed t- style relay, but for automotive applications. So we're actually using ISO micro relays um, that are in automotive. Um, and I've used these for like switching 50 amp fans in automotive applications. So I'm like, okay, there's no way we can kill this thing. But um, that was also the other change. We had to change how much, what voltage we're driving our relay with because those are 12 volt relays. You can't get an automotive three volt one, right? Right, so, right, right. Yeah, have to change what you're getting your voltage from. And the last major change is we put the flyback diodes for the coils on the PCB instead of having the coils have them on the back of them. And this is mainly for in case someone is building their PC their board or their pinball machine and they accidentally wire a diode up backwards on the coil, which happens um, just to prevent the board from blowing up. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Honestly, I, I think it'd probably not be a bad idea to do both. Tell them to yes. put them on there and then yeah. there's protection in both cases. Yeah, the, the main thing is this will at least prevent the board from blowing up if they put the diode on backwards on the coil. Hmm. But putting the diode on the coil is technically the best thing to do for EMF because you're putting the diode as close to the EMF source as possible, which is a ginormous copper coil, right? Right, 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 yeah. But, yeah, two levels of protection is not, not a bad thing for sure. Yeah. And putting the extra diodes on the board is going to raise the cost by nothing. It's, I think... 20 cents overall for the 24 diodes plus assembly sure yeah Yeah. so it's just worth it right yeah so it's worth it um and i didn't actually have to do a lot of layout changes for that one because i put them on the back side of the board there's plenty so i could just put them right next to the pins as well so they're in the optimal area for that to work and those aren't on um terminal blocks right they have like keyed connectors they're keyed connectors yeah they're uh, Molex KK types. What is it? 0.156 inch pitch. Mm-hmm. Pretty beefy connectors. They're is that, way is that standard for pinball 0.156? Yeah, that's a standard pitch for it. That's weird. <laughs> it's um, They're way overkill, though. Just, Super just overkill monster. connectors. Yeah, they're monster. Uh, I think I have. Yeah. This is the this old pin heck, but oh, I can take right, a picture. Yeah, right. yeah, these big guys right here. Yeah, they're really beefy. Yeah, but I, I think, that's, I think that's it standard gives people warm and fuzzies though. When you're putting it together, it's like big kachunk kachunks kind of yeah. connectors. Yeah, so I'll take a picture of the connectors for the for the uh, blog and stuff. But um, and I'll take a picture next to like a normal 100 mil one, um, which is what the servos use. Servos use 100 mil connectors. But the Pentatar actually, since we shrunk the board so much. Um, we actually, the only thing using the big style connectors are the high current stuff, like the coils. Everything else is using 100 mil now. Sure. So. Change the standard. Slowly but surely. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, to change the standard like that, somebody just has to do it. That's actually the thing. It's just like, because most of pinball uses glass style, like, 20 millimeter by five millimeter fuses, mm-hmm. which are a pain in the butt to get locally. Um, cause who sells those? You know, uh, like Radio right. Shack it's, used to, <laughs> it's, it, it is a pain in the butt. Most of the time, uh, there's, there's two electronic stores in Houston 
that carried them for sure. And yes. I know I could always get them at those two, but I'm in Denver and I can't think of a place right now that I, that I could get them. Um, yeah, they're a pain in the butt to get, um, but they're a standard in uh, quotes standard in pinball because some engineer decided back you know in the seventies to start using them, you know, <laughs> to go with the smaller ones. Yeah, yeah. Well, so Pinatar, this is actually the first revision we changed the fuses as well. So instead of the glass type, we're actually using automotive mini blade fuses, mm-hmm. um, which are amazing because they are dirt cheap because they're like five cents a piece and you can buy them at any auto store. Right. right or right. like you can buy them at Walmart. You can buy them at Target. You can you can go to a gas station and buy them. So it's like, okay, <laughs> you can get them anywhere. Right, right. Well, and, and it works for pinball because the values are higher, right? Because yes. you're not going to find a quarter amp on those, right? No. But, like readily available. But our, min- our smallest is a uh, – is a uh, two no three amp fuse I think is the smallest on the board, yeah, which right. you can get those. You, you can actually it. get down to you can get half amp mini blade fuses. So I'm excited. That's cool. actually when do the one uh, of the boards come in? Two three weeks something like that. Yeah, November twentieth is when they will be in my hands. Okay, so maybe we'll hear something in December on that. Uh, hopefully on the twenty fourth. Cool. Well, everyone would hear about on the 25th, actually. <laughs> that's November 25th, because that's a Wednesday. Yeah. <laughs> you have a test bed made for this version? Or are you just going to scope it out and stuff? Uh, just scope it out. Yeah. I'm not too worried about it. The um, When we go production, we'll have a, a bed of nails or something like that for it. Actually, sure. though, is with the with how I've designed it, there's actually no reason to do a bed of nails. It's basically just power it up and make sure you have current limiting on. It's okay. pretty much the only test. And then if it programs, it's like, okay, there's nothing else really for it to go wrong. Because if it passes automatic uh, AOI, it's there's not nothing else to test because everything's, you know, leaded. It's not like the pinheck where, like, the pitch was really tiny on a lot of parts. That was one major thing I did on this design was, like, use big wide pitch parts that you can see and inspect to prevent us from had, uh, having a um, an expensive test fixture or test process for them. Yeah. yeah I wanted to just easier. take them off the line, power them up, good, throw them in the box. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I suppose, I suppose if you've prototyped them and you've proven that, you know, everything's good on the prototypes, then I, um, you know, as long as that gives you enough warm and fuzzy, then you're good to go. Yeah. Well, and it's also they, there's nothing to be calibrated on them. Right, because everything is just on off. Yeah, it's yeah. digital, man. <laughs> That's cool. So, so actually, with the current limiting, is that uh, is that something that you are uh, that you handle inside internally yourself, or are you giving that capability to the game designer? They can constantly sense current sense and like shut off and things, or. Yeah, so the it, the game designer has a little bit of control. Like they can say this should be these parameters, okay, and then it handles that. Uh, like all the low level stuff, it handles itself. Is there some kind of like higher level code that you're offering, or do the game designers have to design on bare metal? So we provide Pinatar. Actually, you won't be programming Pinatar. 
he actually uh, we're working with a uh, software package called uh, Mission Pinball Framework, and you write that, and that runs on like a Raspberry Pi or a computer, and then the Pinatar is a USB device, and so it gets commands of like flip this switch or or this solenoid, and then. It gets a, a you know it gets a switch report back from Pinatar and saying switch X was pressed do this now. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So so, so it, it run, yeah it runs off of a computer, but you could if you wanted to program a game in bare metal. You could. Yeah. It, the the problem with Pinatar is it doesn't have any ability for sound or display. Got it. Natively, so you would have to hack that in somehow or just not have that. Like you could run a buzzer off a song off a MOSFET, but you couldn't do like music. PWM some music. <laughs> yeah, you like could do crap. that. Yeah. <laughs> no, you can do that. It's yeah. just how far do you want to go? Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you're you're the you're the the the, the muscle in the brawn controller, and the computer yes. just commands the muscles. Yes. Cool. And it allows you to do like crazy graphics and stuff like that that way. Right, because yeah, the computer can handle that a lot easier. Yeah, computer easily handles it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I suppose you could probably actually do a Raspberry Pi and get pretty complex with stuff. Yeah, the Raspberry Pi Four runs uh, Mission Pinwall Framework pretty well. Does it? From what? Yeah, from what we've uh, experimented with. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to that. I can't wait. It's it's been. We did Rev. Two in I I designed Rev two in your basement. Or was Over that Rev one? <laughs> no, it was Rev 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 one was in your basement. That was right. Right. Yeah. Oof. <laughs> COVID makes everything weird. A yeah. Everything is like feels slower and way faster at the same time. Exactly. That was. Two Julys ago, <laughs> 2019 July. Yeah, I get. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Crazy. Yep. So I ran into something interesting today uh, that I had never seen before, uh, and so I, I wrote up a quick thing. How soft are your diodes? It's a clickbait title if I've ever uh, written one up. So that, I, 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 I was get this. I was looking at uh, MOSFETs today because I'm I'm doing a design at work that uh, needs some power MOSFETs. And uh, I, I was just going through the data sheet and I ran into a, uh, a, a section, you know, where it calls out all the, um, all the characteristics and it had yeah. S factor in it and it, and next to it, it said softness factor. Uh, and I'd never seen softness factor. So, so before you read the notes, Parker, take a guess on what you think softness factor is. How soft uh, is your so diodes? So it's a diode, and it's just a it's just a standard style diode, right? Well, uh, well, this was on a MOSFET a data sheet, but this applies to diodes also. Oh, oh, yeah. Ooh, um, it's a it's a number that explains the curve of the cutoff. Pretty pretty close, actually. Uh, it, what, what, okay, so what softness factor is, it's a definition of the reversed current characteristics on a diode. So get this. When, so when a diode turns on, it builds up a space charge inside the PN junction, right? Mm-hmm. 
that's hunky dory. That's all great whenever the diode is is on. But as soon as it it flips to turning off, so once you get past that threshold, current still flows through the diode until you are effectively reverse bias, right? So then the diode the the problem is you still have charge left in that space charge, and that has to deplete. So charge will actually reverse, and you get reverse current through the diode. That's why, like, if you ever look at a rectifier on a scope, you see your lobe that you're expecting, and then it goes the opposite direction, and it seems really confusing, right? Well, that's mm-hmm. actually just the depletion of the space current, the space charge current in the in the diode and the softness factor is actually a definition of how that actually looks that portion now and so i i've i'm plenty aware of the reverse characteristics of diodes because i've dealt with them a lot but i never knew that it could actually be defined and uh and funny enough it's actually defined as two separate sections there's a ta and tb and that's time of a section a and the time of a section b and I found this this great article called um, it's from electrical4u.com, which, by the way, I'd never heard of this website. And I went to the website, and it feels very, it feels very similar to the idea we had of so you want to design a blah blah blah. It feels like structure for that. Uh, not it's not uh, organized in the in a way that was in my mind, but like this whole article was like, here's softness factor, and here's all the things you need to know about it, and here's the things that matter. And I was like, hey, this is a great article. And, that and actually, like, how does it matter to what you're designing? Exactly. And there's like yeah. charts in there that it's like if you if there's this diode, it's this kind of thing, and it, there there are these ranges and blah blah blah. So yeah, go check this out. Um, we'll post the link up in the show notes. But uh, the 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 kind of the softness factor curve is defined in this article of that ta and tb section where ta is the time when the charge from the depletion uh, region is removed and then tb is the return to zero current which is the time when the charge from the semiconductor region is removed and the softness factor is a ratio of those two times so if the ratio is unity the device is considered a soft recovery uh, device so it has a has a, a smoother curve and it's slower shall we say uh, and then if if the s factor is uh, less than unity it's considered a fast or a snappy recovery device um, uh, so this is this is how you can get a shocky diode this is what makes a shocky diode a shocky diode or a fast recovery diode or a fast recovery diode uh, well, yeah, this this well in, in relation to the reverse recovery time. Yes. Uh, this is the, yeah, this is exactly what makes it so that your general purpose, your Joe Schmo jelly bean diodes typically fit more into the soft recovery zone. So they have more of a unity S factor. And then uh, your fast recovery or your Fred diodes, uh, which are the fast recovery ex- epitaxial diodes, they uh, have a lower than unity S factor. Those are the thing. Know. Look them up. Fred diodes are a real. I don't thing. even know why I'm shaking my head because I would totally have come up with that if it would have championed it if it was my idea. They're great. They're great. Um, and and actually, it's <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Like you know, like the reg. I'm sure most everyone is aware of the one N four series of diodes. The four zero zero one two three four. You can also get them in a UF version, the ultra fast four zero zero one or four zero zero three or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, the difference between those is S factor. 
uh, and how fast it recovers. And and what's interesting is you can kind of fine-tune your circuit, especially if you're putting them in like a rectifier application. You can fine-tune your circuit based off of the ringing of the S-factor and what happens in your rectifiers uh, based on what the highest frequency you can accept in your circuit. So if you typically soft recovery diodes are a little bit cheaper and they're slower so if your circuit can handle that ringing at lower uh frequencies then go ahead and use your soft recoveries they'll be fine as long as your circuit's fine with that but if that's a problem use your fast snappy ones and in fact in in my guitar amps i use fast snappy recovery because if that's too slow it uh, manifest itself as ringing and buzzing in the in the sound so i use the fast stuff because it usually ends up being higher than audible and so even if it exists in my rectifier then who cares you know you can't hear it mm -hmm. and with guitar amps most of the time they're band limited to like five kilohertz so like yeah you know you can get away with with uh slower stuff but yeah we're using um one and four oh oh fours for our uh or flybacks. Yeah. So. I wonder if that's big enough. I guess so. That's what they use in the industry. Yeah, the We're difference, actually the difference using between the all of those is uh, the voltage range, right? Because one and yeah, 4001's like 50 volts, and the 4007's are like 1,000 volts. Yeah. And then it, it increases in between those. We're technically using the MRA4004, which is the... Surface mount version, right? Surface mount version from yeah. OnSemi. Yeah. Got to get that Fred MRA 4004. <laughs> Although for your application, don't. Because it doesn't matter, right? Like, I, I don't know. What is what is like the ideal diode to snub a, the, the flyback from a coil? One that can handle the energy. <laughs> like that's yeah, the so. ideal one, right? As long as it's fast enough that uh, you don't get a massive voltage increase and it can handle the repetitive total amount of energy that the coil is going to dump through it yeah so uh, the those those 4000 series diodes are beefy as hell like they just take abuse so i you, you're probably fine with that oh we're just using industry standard so yeah it so means. it's been it, you've had plenty of proof that it works right yep so. well they do fail every so often and no one knows seems to know why either. Okay, so put some four thousand and fives in there. <laughs> <laughs> cool. And actually it seems to be like when a solenoid starts to wear is when it could go out. So I don't know what that is about. I I don't know enough about electromechanical stuff to What is it, what does it mean when a solenoid wears? Like what uh, like Usually it's like the liner inside of it. That the nylon liner starts to get a little grimy in there from repetitive motion of the uh the chromed actuator basically mm -hmm. um it'll start to gum up hmm. or or the coils are being run above its duty cycle it starts to heat up oh yeah sure yeah i guess if the if the ball's just like hammering whatever mech that is <laughs> yep cool Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is a funny, funny in quotes article that I found on on Fierce. It's a Walmart fires store robots. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. 
Because you know we we were we're in a a climate of of you know a lot of people are on on unemployment and that kind of stuff and man these robots can't get a break either because they're they're unemployed now too. Um, basically these are these were robots that Walmart was using to control like shelving stock like the, like the what was on their shelves and make sure that the shelves were full. Okay. Um, and they got rid of them all because, well, one, they did see improvements in inventory control of the robots, but not enough of improvement in revenue or other measures. They put other measures in there too. Um, cause the idea was if you keep the stock, the shelves stocked, you'll sell more product, which makes sense. Um, but apparently, it wasn't un- that that premise is not enough to keep the expensive robots around, at least more so than hiring you know a high school student at eight dollars an hour to walk down the shelves and make sure stuff is stocked. <laughs> <laughs> you know, actually, um, having worked at Walmart in the past, uh, one of the biggest things that they would really rap on us for is um, not having the inventory at the front of the shelf. Because yes. there's there's this perception that if you see something empty, that's bad for the for the uh, customer store. And yeah. so uh, you always try to fill in gaps and you try to make things look clean and neat. Uh, because like if you've ever been to a store where you know the the shelves are just empty, it's like oh gosh, this is the wild west. I don't want to shop here. You mean Fry's Electronics? <laughs> <laughs> No, no, that's actually exactly what they were talking about. But um, they did see improvements in that, but it did not turn into enough revenue, extra revenue to pay for the robots. Hmm. Yeah. So they probably did see some improvement there, but not enough to keep the robots around. So they they fired all the robots. See, if the robots actually had AI, could they file for unemployment? <laughs> Yeah, and they're they're expedient with every document. Like it's it's there on time, like right away, instantaneously. Yeah, yeah. So I just thought it was interesting that th- it was mainly the title "Fires Store Robots." These robots look kind of creepy. They they actually look like something that would be in a um, Doctor Who episode. Yeah, uh, they really just actually look like trash cans. <laughs> exactly, something from a Doctor Who. Oh uh, yeah, episode. you're right. You're right. <laughs> They, yeah, they, it's, um, we, we talked to, gosh, remember this, we talked uh, about some robots, I think they were security bots, and one of them yeah. like fell in a fountain or something yes, like that. fell in the fountain. This looks similar to that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, basically they, they said that, um, like, because the robots would go around and basically notify a human that they needed to adjust the inventory, like to bring the box forward, right? Hmm. But if there was a problem with the robot, you had to get a more expensive technician out to fix the robot. And it's like, well, you could have had your high school $8 an hour student just, you know, or employee just walk down the hall, you know, the aisle and then just do it no matter what. Yeah. So Walmart, Walmart has the kind of money to experiment. Experiment. Yeah. With this kind of stuff. We, we are certainly not there yet. No. But eventually, for sure. All right. So, um, 
something happened earlier today that uh, really kind of sparked my interest. We're on episode 249 now, so we've gone quite a long time. And uh, in our Slack channel, at uh, Zane said that they were going back and listening to episode one. Now, I don't know if that means that they had gone through all of our episodes uh, and then and then gone back, but, but they're going back and listening to episode one, which, uh, bless your heart, and thank you very much, and also good luck, because those were, those were the dark times. But uh, they were not dark. We just, <laughs> we still don't even know what we're doing. No, 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 no. We're only slightly better now. <laughs> but no, no, no. Thank you for going back, and, and, and thank you for listening to everything. And going back, that's fantastic. But, but what this really brought up was uh, a handful of comments about the SSPS. And I realized that we hadn't talked about the SSPS in a while. And the SSPS is a dark project i guess we could say because it's it's the project that just won't finish and just won't get done as are like most of our projects but it was from day one our project and i and i I figured because we hadn't talked about it in a while we might have some new listeners that have no idea what the ssps is and i I like the new name for it well there was like a a handful of new names which which one uh, was your favorite oh the spooky simple power supply (laughs) Yeah, it is spooky now. It's a, yeah, it's a ghost almost. So I started thinking about it, and, uh, and, and what, what I wanted to just cover real quick is what is the SSPS uh, to bring people up to speed who might not know what it is. And then I started thinking, what were its specifications? So I went back and looked at our notes from the first handful. I couldn't find any of our specifications for it. I don't know if we actually wrote them down. Because we just knew them at the time. So uh, I wanted to talk about the specifications and then where did we leave off with it? Because Parker mentioned in the Slack channel that it's just chilling in my basement, which is partially true. It's actually just chilling in my garage right now. (laughs) So I was one room away from it. (laughs) One room away and exposed to the elements. (laughs) So, okay. First of all, let's let's talk about the specifications for the SSPS because there might be something cool that we could potentially do with it in the future. So, if I remember right, this, the SSPS. So, first of all, uh, let me step back for a second. The SSPS was the first project that we came up with on the podcast, and it was basically a monstrous linear power supply that was digitally controlled. It had two outputs. Uh, it was capable of 10 amps, I believe, was the number that we came up with. We were originally... I found I found the specifications, at least what we wrote down in... What, Google Docs or something? Two isolated minus 30 volt to plus 30 volt at 10 amp outputs. Right, okay, yeah, full 70 volt swing. And then with 10 millivolt per bit control. You... <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing. That's pretty. That's pretty fine resolution for that yeah. big of a thing. <laughs> but okay, okay. So so here's the thing. I went back because I, I I had very little recollection of what what we had actually done, and and we we actually documented a whole lot of stuff. We have a full GitHub, which we'll post the links for that. I I have them up here. We have a full GitHub. I I went back and started looking at stuff. Both Parker and I designed boards for this. I designed and what we had originally called the energon cube which the energon cube was 
eight monster screw terminal capacitors that had copper bus bars screwed into them. It might be the scariest thing we've ever put together on a bench. Oh, it stored a, a boatload of it. It was it was it was the kind of device that when you turned it on, the lights dimmed. Uh, yeah. And so yeah, the Energon Cube was eight giant reservoir capacitors that uh, our PCB bolted to those, and um, my my analog board was a big analog basic regulator, effectively. That the the idea was to have a giant copper water block going down the middle of it that we could bolt all of our power pass transistors to it. And actually, if you go listen to the first few episodes of the podcast, we talk about running this thing off of some pretty crazy op amps that were available. We actually ditched that and just went to a discrete version of things. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I went back and looked at the design and it was, it, I actually did that because I'm doing something similar, but way, way, way less power at work right now. But it's still similar layout. Uh, it's still, you know, past transistors with, with error correction, um, feedback and stuff. And uh, so, so we'd actually designed both of these boards, an analog board and a digital brain to control it. And we hooked it up and the thing actually worked. Like we, mm -hmm. we had the SSPS functioning. Uh, and then we put it down because it just, we'd never really got to, I think the part that we left off at was the faceplate. We never actually made the faceplate for it. Correct. Is that really all that we have left? It was, on it? It, well, well, we had to do another spin of the, of the boards. Yeah. And we um, never actually made the heat sinking. Correct. Never made a heat sinking. Right. But we have all the stuff to do the heat sinking. I think. You know, I so I went out to the garage and I, I checked the parts that I have. I have everything except for the radiator, which, whatever, the radiator is something we yeah. can get off of Amazon. So, yeah, we would need to redo the boards. Th there, was, there was one thing about the design that kind of sucked, I guess you could say. <laughs> the, uh, it, because it was a linear power supply, uh, one of the downfalls of a linear power supply is the way you get regulated power is everything you don't want, you just get rid of it as heat. Like, mm -hmm. that's the way a linear generally works. And so this power supply would work really great if you wanted 30 volts, 10 amps. Like, it's great. It'd probably run fairly cool doing that, right? Because it's not getting rid of anything. But let's say you wanted three volts at 10 amps well it has to get rid of 27 <laughs> volts at 10 amps yeah. <laughs> and it has to get rid of that as heat so it's massively inefficient it is yep. awful inefficient but it has the benefit of being a linear power supply which if if you're into it linear power supplies are typically superior in terms of their noise performance they're, they're generally better so i guess we we kind of decided to go with that as a primary <laughs> factor yes. so i don't know I, th I thought it was fun to go back and and look at our designs i think i think the reason why i liked the idea was was actually building a linear power supply that was like this just ridiculous. that was just super overkill yeah yeah like you can do 10 amps at a linear power supply or you can do like you know a quarter of an amp <laughs> right it, it, yeah yeah and you could do 10 millivolt resolution yeah, it probably I think like, that was picked. We never actually I think that tested was, the resolution on it. No, and I think that was just because that was what the analog to digital or digital to analog converters were um, capable spec'd at. Right, yeah, right, capable yeah. of. 
So, so it'd probably be somewhere ever, higher than that. So, you know, I, it's it, yeah, it's likely higher than that. I, but I don't know exactly what its absolute accuracy was. I remember originally we were talking about making a linear power supply that was capable of producing a full 170 volt swing at uh, at 60 hertz, so we could simulate mains into a device. That, no, that was actually one idea we had. Is, technically, you could do it. This thing could technically do it. Uh, no, it, it, it doesn't. It, it's, it doesn't have enough voltage swing on it. Yeah, no, but you would have to basically double the insides. Oh yeah, I mean we'd have to go ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. No, we'd have to we'd have to uh, triple the insides. Because yes, you're yeah, right. yeah, because because your absolute value you have to go up to about 170 volts. So yeah, yeah that would right, be really right. cool to have something that could produce a perfect mains sine wave. Um. Just generate it from a box. That was the original thought, but that was just a little too ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. One one day we'll do something with it, and I would love to see it evolve. You know, I would love to see it evolve. Frankly, what would be really cool is if the uh, if the Slack channel was into it. If we all designed the SSPS together and really like refined things based off of the hive mind knowledge and come up with a perfect SSPS that that still like last week, that still maintained the spirit of the SSPS. <laughs> I mean, it really has to hit that dual channel plus minus 30 volt 10 amp. It's, that's the main thing. Right, right. Yeah. And and efficiency obviously doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. No. Actually, it's linear, yeah, so, so it doesn't matter. Uh, You're barred by physics on that one. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's going to get hot. Yep. Cool. My favorite thing is I'm looking through the, the GitHub repo, and uh, the credits are Parker Doman and then Steven Hackerman Craig. That's right. <laughs> yep, so we'll, we'll, we'll post up the GitHub. Maybe we'll get a couple people looking at it. I don't know. If anyone wants to consider stuff with it, yeah. shoot it up on Slack. Yeah, I think we need a better... I think our front panel design was a little ambitious. So I think we, if we simplified the front panel design, um, and I think if we made the board that controlled the Energon cube, make that also the digital side too. Oh, we could probably put both of them on one board. Yeah. Put it on one board and then have a front panel. That's just like the buttons. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, and just do it that way. That'd be a lot easier. I mean, if you want to do it really simple, uh, you could have a screen that just displays what the voltage and current are, and then uh, just have no. It needs to have them. no. The spirit, remember, it has to have the. <laughs> it has to still have the. It still has to have the seven segment displays. Uh, I might as well do Nixie tubes then and have it be all. all no, glowing. it was seven segment. Is how we had it. So, <laughs> that's the spirit. But 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 yeah, it did. the The thing is, we never actually got around to actually physically writing the code for it like it, it had like a whole keypad entry it had like basic like ability to set voltages but we never wrote like key code or anything like that no 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 yeah one day it's fun to one look day. back so once again thanks uh zane for going back and listening again yeah thank you and um before we sign off uh if anyone is interested in donating to my charity stream, links in the description of the podcast or hit me up on Slack or Twitter. So thanks, everyone.
Come check it out on Saturday. Or help us out with the SSPS. Should be fun. So that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your hosts, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dillman. Take it easy. Later, everyone.